Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Yaakov Ariel is a professor in the Department of Religious Studies and co-director of the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His research focuses on Protestant attitudes towards the Jewish people on Christian-Jewish relationships in the late modern era and on the Jewish reaction to modernity and post-modernity. He's published numerous articles. His first monograph, Evangelizing the Chosen People, was awarded the Albert C. Utler Prize by the American Society of Church History. His most recent book is An Unusual Relationship, Evangelical Christians and Jews, published in 2013 by New York University Press. And that's what we're going to be talking to him about today. So thank you so much for joining us, Professor Ariel. My pleasure. So beginning, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to this profession and to the subjects that you work on today? Well, I <clears throat> I grew up in Jerusalem, surrounded by numerous Christian groups who took very often special interest in the city, its people, its, uh, its destiny, its history. And um, I wanted to make sense of uh, those Christians I saw around me. I visited churches and groups, talked to people. I studied history at the Hebrew University, worked uh, on some Christian topics. But later on, I moved to the University of Chicago to take a degree in history of Christianity and uh, to study more systematically the attitudes of Christian groups towards the Jewish people, towards the land of Israel, towards the state of Israel. and vice versa, to study some of the uh, attitudes of Jews towards Christians and Christianity and towards the attention that was given them by Christian groups. When you first arrived at the University of Chicago, was was there a difference in terms of how American Christians and people studying in the United States viewed that relationship between Christians and Jews compared to what you had known in Israel, or was it quite similar? Well, it was different in the sense that uh, Israel, of course, was not at the center 
of uh, interest at the University of Chicago. I mean, there was some interest. There was some interest in Christian-Jewish relations. But I was able to study Christianity uh, from a perspective in which uh, Christian-Jewish relations are just one among many aspects of a larger larger tradition and larger attitudes. Mm -hmm. And this was, of course, very beneficial. Uh, in Israel, in, in you get very often the the sense that uh, the old Christians are just interested in coming to the Holy Land, and that, of course, the Holy Land is at the center of their interest. Now, the Holy Land is uh, at uh, is there, and there is much interest, but of course, it's not the only thing. Uh, that motivates Christianity. Right. So getting some of that context was something that, yeah. that yeah, you got in Chicago, certainly. So tell me about then an unusual relationship, the book. What made you decide to write that book in particular? Well, this book actually brings to fruition uh, many years of interest in evangelical Jewish relations. I found that relationship to be particularly intriguing Particularly, uh, particularly unusual, rather <laughs> unusual, because uh, in no other case does do members of uh, one religious tradition view members of another religious tradition as quote unquote chosen or as chosen to play a particular role, um, important central role mm. in the history of uh, salvation. You know, uh, it's not usual also that uh, members of one religious tradition view a country that's very far away uh, from their own as, as a holy land, as a land where that will, be, will, that, that will become ground zero of uh, the future events of the end times. So I found that uh, particularly intriguing. But also... Uh, there have been lately quite uh, awareness and quite a number of studies and uh, writing about the political aspects of evangelical Jewish relations. And I wanted to show that there's much more to it than that. The evangelicals have taken interest in Jews since their tradition formed, crystallized in the 18th century, and that uh, the interest of evangelicals in Jews goes way beyond politics. It has a long history. Uh, missions play a central role. Uh, there's been almost an endless amount of publications, journals, books, tracts uh, that evangelicals produced for the Jews, about the Jews, uh, as a consequence of this relationship, struggling with this relationship. This relationship has varieties. Uh, it's diverse, it's complex. Not all evangelicals agree on, on everything. And, um, and this relationship created a borderline culture, borderline community, uh, and, and, or set of communities and cultures between Christianity and Judaism, which I found to be particularly fascinating. Yeah, well, so I, I do want to ask you a bit more about uh, Messianic Judaism in a moment. But I was curious, I mean, as I was reading, your discussion includes people who are well known in the history of Christian Zionism. I think of, you know, your Blackstones and your Shaftesbury's, for example, but mm -hmm. also people who are much lesser known, William Heckler, the Spafford family. What are some of those historical characters um, who were maybe living in some of those borderlands who stood out for you the most as you were researching this project? 
I actually took a lot of interest uh, in, I took an interest in those, in those particular personalities, but I also wanted to show that they were not just Christian Zionists. Mm. They very often came from, with a much broader understanding of the Jews and took a broader, uh, a broader I would say, interest or activity relating to Jews. Uh, the Shaftesbury's and Blackstone's are very good examples because both of them were missionary leaders. Uh, both people had mm. major innovative uh, groups that came to evangelize the Jews, but more than evangelize the Jews, interact with the Jews, write for the Jews, write about the Jews, uh, try to re-educate the Jews, provide the Jews with material help, with advice, and so on. Um, I took particular interest also in literature, because I think this is less known, what kind of literatures were produced throughout uh, more than 200 years of evangelical Jewish relationship. Uh, some fascinating stuff, at least as far as I'm concerned. Uh, missionaries, for example, wrote extensively in Yiddish. And I think there's very little knowledge, or very little awareness of what I would call missionary Yiddish. Right. which then includes hundreds and hundreds of tracks, journals, um, poetry, uh, theological uh, theological uh, constructions, and so on and so forth. And I thought I, thought I should bring uh, forward a comprehensive understanding of evangelical Jewish relations and the creativity that came with it. Mm, yes, and that's so you you devote a whole chapter to looking at that archive, that Yiddish literature that was being produced um, by both Jews who had become Christians and were producing that literature, and then also, as you said, by um, Christian born missionaries too who were producing it. Tell me about that archive that you found. I mean, it's such a rich source. Where, what were you looking at? Where were you finding it? Well, I found it in, in different places. Uh, a lot of my work at the beginning was uh, taking place at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. At this moment, actually, they don't have those materials anymore because they decided that not enough people take interest in them <laughs> and they don't have enough space. Um, but I found also fascinating material going all the way back to the 18th century, uh, including in Europe itself, um, you can find material it, uh, uh, that relates to the pietists in Germany, to mm -hmm. evangelicals in Britain, to uh, American missionaries in America or in Palestine. I found such material in at least half a dozen different uh, libraries and archives. So when were the first documents being produced in Yiddish that you found? Actually, the first ones were produced in early 18th century Germany in the uh, first Protestant mission, not just to the Jews, uh, placed Jews very high on its priority. <laughs> it's the pietists of Halle who, uh, who established what was the first systematic mission to the Jews. There was one mission that started even earlier, but this was really a very systematic attitude, studying Jewish languages, producing uh, producing literature in Jewish languages, and uh, translating a whole corpus of writings hmm. into Jewish languages, Hebrew, Yiddish, Aramaic. And uh, only now 
after the uh, fall of the wall in East Germany, there is a really a growing awareness of the richness of those uh, those materials and those archives. Although you can find many of the uh, books produced, books and tracks produced in the Library of Congress. So for those of our listeners who haven't read Evangelizing the Chosen People, your first book, although they should, um, if they haven't read it, tell me, I mean, what what was driving these Protestants, pietists, or the evangelicals who you describe later on, um, what's driving them to put the Jews at the forefront of their mission activity? Uh, absolutely. I think that's a very central question because many of those people were moving away from what we could call more traditional attitudes towards the Jews, traditional attitudes that saw Christianity as replacing uh, the Jewish people and God's promises and covenants with the Jewish people. Uh, what what motivated them was a new reading of the Christian sacred scriptures and very often a messianic faith that placed the Jews and the land of Israel at the center of future events. The Jews were not just anymore scattered, uh, underprivileged, uh, despised beings. They were also not people who have already uh, moved away from the um, major arenas of human history and God's plans for humanity. They were people who perhaps are underprivileged and are scattered and are humiliated, but those are people that are going to be rehabilitated, reinstated, and that are necessary and needed for the future uh, history of salvation to unfold. Mm-hmm. And so the missionaries, or even people who were not, the missions were very a very convenient way to relate to the Jews. So many, many such activists uh, that came with those kind of uh, theological and messianic understandings joined missions or created missions, but some people acted outside of the realm of missions. Those people very often felt that they have themselves a mission to bring the Jews to be aware of their special mission in history and to bring the Christian Protestant community to realize that it has a commitment towards the Jews, that it needs to change its attitudes towards the Jews, and that it should invest time and energy and goodwill and resources in helping the Jews become the people who can face bravely their historical mission. So something that's on on a slightly different note, but but I mean, certainly there must be echoes of this theology, and is your chapter that I found so interesting, I was really struck by it, um, about evangelical understandings of the Holocaust, takes us in a bit of a different direction, moving much more recently into the 1980s, but you're also looking at literature, and of course you're also looking at evangelicals who um, are the heirs of that theology that you've just been Mm -hmm. describing. Um, Tell me a little bit about uh, about what you discovered as you were going through that literature on the Holocaust. So little has been written about it, the popular literature on this topic. Right. The evangelicals, like many other groups, discovered the Holocaust or really took interest in it or became fully aware of it rather late. During the 1940s, 50s, even 60s, there wasn't full awareness. People perhaps knew in general terms what happened, the numbers, uh, but taking actual interest, what happened there uh, really came about 
gradually. Some people started writing already in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. By the 70s and 80s, new questions come about. They were there before, but they take um, they take the form of a much larger uh, audience taking interest in those questions. The question is, how did we, real Christians, true Christians, uh, born-again Christians, behave during the time of the Holocaust? How could such uh, such events take place in what are formerly or officially Christian lands. And the evangelical understanding on the whole has been that the Nazis were not Christians, that um, true Christians by definition could not perform atrocities, and that true Christian believers behaved appropriately. And of course, there are some uh, striking examples of uh, Christians that did behave in a way that uh, their descendants or their co-religionists can take pride in, mm. uh, such as Corrie ten Boom, a very famous Dutch rescuer of Jews. She and her family uh, hide Jews during uh, the time of the Holocaust. They were discovered. And uh, the entire family was decimated, and only she survived. And her memoirs became a bestseller in the United States and in Europe, and, and sold by the millions and translated to many languages. And uh, Billy Graham and his network picked the story and turned it into perhaps the most famous evangelical book on the Holocaust. But there are other books, and even series of books on the Holocaust. It's clear that evangelical feel for Jews in those books. It's clear that they identify with uh, sometimes with the Jewish plight. But at the same time, they, uh, they relate to it very differently than other Christian groups making the claims, we would have behaved differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for anyone who's worked on evangelicals, I'm sure that they've run into Corey Tenboom. Well, at least anyone who's been working on sort of contemporary um, evangelicals and the hiding place. It's on most evangelicals' bookshelves, probably um, in North America. So it's fantastic that you um, included that in your in your book. Um, so how does it, when when they're thinking about the Holocaust or, or when evangelicals are thinking about their relationship to the state of Israel, how does it connect to the kinds of questions that you were asking about missionary work? Is there any connection to this idea of actually evangelizing the Jews? I think there is. Um, missions and pro-Zionist, pro-Israeli activities go hand in hand. Uh, missionary, evangelical missionary societies uh, have been centers of Christian Zionism. Uh, evangelical missionary societies today are centers of pro-Israel activity. Uh, many, many major, I think we mentioned, many major evangelical activists were both missionaries and Christian Zionists. But today, too, many of uh, the most known evangelicals involved with Israel and uh, trying to assist Israel uh, have were or are involved also in missionary work directly and indirectly. But I think we need to understand that this missionary work isn't just about trying to convert the Jews. In fact, there has to be a Jewish people for, according to uh, the messianic understanding of many evangelicals, not all of them, in order for the end times event to get rolling, to to uh, in order for history of salvation to starting uh, to start to unfold, 
missions are very often a means of relating to the Jews, means of educating the Jews, means of educating, quote-unquote, uh, the Christian community about the Jews. Right. So they're agencies of interaction. They're agencies of involvement. Yes, converting some Jews would be nice, but uh, this is not uh, the major mission of missions, amazingly, because even if the number of converts is particularly small, still uh, the missions are very important for such people. So I, I like that, the the way that you've been talking about interactions, and earlier you mentioned borderland cultures. So this right. brings us to um, a topic that you've, you've approached before, but I think in this book you talked about it in more depth, which is Messianic Judaism. Can you tell our listeners, they, they might not know what Messianic Judaism is, but it's a topic that's near to my heart too, because I work on it a bit as well. Can you tell them a bit about what that means, Messianic Judaism? Absolutely, absolutely. First of all, I, I'd like to... Stated, I make the point that Messianic Judaism is ultimately a result of evangelical Jewish interaction. It's a borderline community, faith, between evangelical Christianity and Judaism. Uh, Messianic Jews, there are quite a few varieties uh, of Messianic, Messianic Jews and Messianic Judaism. But in principle, those are people who have accepted the Christian faith in its evangelical interpretation accepted Jesus as the personal savior, underwent, that is, a personal experience of conversion, of uh, being born again in Christ. And uh, those people accept, in principle, the most basic elements of Christian theology, the authority of the Bible. Um, For example, they need to be born again and accept Jesus as a personal savior. Uh, At the same time, uh, those people identify as Jews, They don't see themselves as people who walked away from their Jewish being, from their Jewish identity. And their communities try to amalgamate both Jewish identity, Jewish pride, Jewish culture, uh, Jewish symbolism, uh, Jewish um, holidays, and, and the Jewish Sabbath at the same time that they promote faith in Jesus and are also committed to evangelism and sharing their faith with fellow Jews and non Jews. Uh, Many of those communities have a substantial percentage of non-Jews among them, so they're not not based just on ethnicity, but they are uh, Jewish ethnic centers in many ways, or centers of Jewish identity, pride, and culture that work within the framework of evangelical Christianity. Uh, yeah, I was, I was struck actually throughout. I mean, there are these these various Jews also in terms of um, the Yiddish literature that we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. um, that are there are various Jews who come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They accept him as their personal savior. And then they are the ones who really will speak to the evangelical community on behalf of the Jews. Um, mm-hmm. They are the ones who... It, from your book are at the forefront sometimes of actually changing evangelical attitudes about Jews. Um, what what characters did you did you find in your research? What people uh, stuck out for you? I found dozens and dozens of uh, such people. The amazing thing was to discover that yes, those are proud Jews mm. that in the evangelical community, and you can say within the Christian community in general. Those people are representative of Jewish interests. They uh, they, they uh, protest anti-Semitic 
uh, attitudes or sayings. They demand uh, full civil rights for Jews and so on and so forth. They give also, as I think you mentioned, literary expression to both their to their experience being both Jewish and Christian at the same time, uh, the various struggles throughout the years. Messianic Judaism didn't come about uh, all at once. It has a long history of uh, Jews accepting evangelical Christianity, remaining in some ways attached to Jewish culture and society, representing Jewish needs and feelings within the evangelical community. There have been, quote-unquote, Hebrew Christian communities starting already in the 19th century and certainly in the 20th century. But the movement received an enormous boost and expanded enormously since the 1970s, among other reasons because it became much more legitimate within the evangelical community to express evangelicalism in... um, in whatever specific ethnic or cultural uh, way members wish to express it. Mm-hmm. And there's been, in general, a much larger legitimacy in America for what we can call hybrid communities and the amalgamation of various identities. We live already in, in that respect. Messianic Judaism and Messianic Jews, although they don't perhaps always think in such ways, are a postmodern group that sees itself uh, as combining different identities, different agendas, as, and, and as transforming uh, old boundaries, as, as um, overlooking old boundaries, or not overlooking them, but trying to, uh, to amend old injuries, old, uh, put aside old boundaries, and create something that was considered until until half a century ago, for sure, perhaps four decades ago, totally undoable, created and under the under the rub- under the theological rubric that it can be done mm. theologically and communally, uh, but also in some ways under the understanding that uh, religious communities can be created and recreated. So I, th- I think what we see here is both uh, a unique phenomenon. Uh, as far as the history of Christian-Jewish relations uh, is concerned. But what we see is also something that has become very American in the last generation and has, of course, branches outside of America. And this is the recreation of religious traditions based on the needs and the determinations of the individuals that join them. So for those listeners who want to find out more as well, you edited a volume, a special issue of Nova Religio on Messianic Judaism, and that probably gets at some of these issues about hybridity and how this uh, movement also takes different aspects of both Christianity and Judaism and combines them in sometimes really novel ways. So speaking of Jews, but who we might call perhaps mainstream Jews or those Jews who are not Messianics, um, this book, as you know, an unusual relationship is really about the relationship that evangelicals have to the Jews, the way that they understand the Jews. Um, but maybe you can give us a sense here and there, you know, we, we get a sense of how the Jews also are responding and maybe even creating their own relationships to evangelicals. Can you give us a sense of some of those moments that you found? 
Yes, I found that uh, there was never a unified Jewish attitude, of course. Jews were very taken aback, have been taken aback when they encountered missionaries. But uh, many Jews were curious, particularly Jews, young Jews, Jews on the move, immigrants, came to talk with evangelical representatives out of interest, out of curiosity. Uh, many Jews benefited from various um, agencies of help and support, medical, educational, uh, that evangelicals created among the Jews. Those agencies were extremely helpful during the 19th and 20th century to immigrant groups and to the relatively poor uh, Jewish community in Palestine. At the same time, we see among Zionists, again, a dual message. On the one hand, of course, they don't like uh, missionizing the Jews. They want the Jews to become Zionists. They want the Jews to accept the Zionist uh, ideology, which was mostly secular, partially socialist, and had very little room for Christian missionaries in it. But at the same time... And these, uh, are, the, these are the Jewish Zionists that you're right. talking about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, they uh, very much wanted Christian support and, were, uh, and received a lot, uh, not just of political... Uh, political, I would say, oxygen from Christian uh, Zionist support, but uh, were very much encouraged. Those two groups, actually, very much in the uh, 20th century, very much encouraged each other. But thank you also for your remark, because I think that that's, again, another uh, important thing to realize, that Zionism uh, throughout the years, and especially in its early stages, was not just a Jewish uh, endeavor, but that it's in some ways you can say it's a Christian Jewish endeavor, because even uh, Jewish Zionists received a lot of encouragement and support from their Christian counterparts. And uh, in some ways you can say that this legitimized the movement in their eyes and gave them a sense that the non-Jewish world, the Christian world, will ultimately could ultimately be persuaded and accept the Zionist agenda. And and that's a good point, because for those folks who are interested in picking up this book, although, as you noted, a fair amount has been written on political Zionism. And so this book goes well beyond that, because it's interested in those those linkages, those borderland cultures, um, and the literary output in particular that, that arises. And yet, at the same time, throughout the book, we do hear about politics related to the state of Israel. We hear about politics even related to domestic policy within the United States. So politics is certainly not absent in that relationship as you portray it in this book. So on a slightly different note, I'd like to end by asking you about your current project, which is about Allen Ginsberg, if I'm right, that is the, famous, the famous beat poet. So how did you get from this to that? I think there's a very direct connection. Uh, the uh, Allen Ginsberg was, from that point of view, one of the, an avant-garde Jew of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Later on, he was still with us in the 80s and 90s, but he wasn't avant-garde anymore. Um, he first, he came out of a Jewish secular home, but was still uh, very interested in uh, Jewish history, Jewish spirituality, but he was interested in venturing beyond it. And he did not, not deny his Jewishness uh, and uh, kept connected and interested, but he added to it. He first took interest in Christian mysticism, 
uh, not in the Messianic Jewish sense, because he was interested more in uh, English and medieval uh, mysticism. Later on, he shifted to Hinduism and then to Buddhism. But he never, he did that while creating what we can call a spiritual, communal, cultural quilt. Not not replacing uh, one segment with the other, not denying a certain segment, not rewriting his uh, biography, but by really adding layers to his spiritual and cultural and communal being. And um, in his poetry, you can find moments of Christian spirituality, of uh, Buddhist awareness, but you can also find a lot of Jewish elements in it, uh, even while he was practicing um, most of his uh, most of his three decades of his life, Buddhism. So I see where the themes intersect then in terms of the uh, this hybridity and also the literary output that comes with it as well. Right. Well, right. thank you so much for speaking thank you. with us. And, thank you uh, for reading my book so thoroughly and uh, with so much insight. Well, I yeah, thoroughly that's... enjoyed it. <laughs> And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And also, I, I must say that it is written in such a way that I would think that uh, the audiences listening to this recording, whether they are academic or general, will very much enjoy it. It's a beautifully written book as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.